electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. And good evening, everybody. Thanks, Jim. I'm Eamon Javers, sitting in for Brian Sullivan tonight, buckling down for Berkshire. What will Warren Buffett say tomorrow about the turmoil hitting the banking system? We're going to go live to Omaha and talk about good timing. One congressman sold shares in the regional banks just before they crashed. We'll tell you who it was. Targeting ChatGPT, striking Hollywood writers are spooked over AI's future in entertainment, and they should be. We're going to show you why. That's coming up later. New revelations in the Jeffrey Epstein story. A stunning report reveals the sexual predator's previously unknown connections to the highest corridors of power and celebrity in America. That report's author is going to join us here tonight. And the crazy details of the royal riches. You won't believe all the strange stuff that King Charles owns as we get set for Coronation Weekend. We'll go inside the money behind the monarchy and ask why so many Brits still think the royal family makes financial sense. All of that and much more Last Call is up right now. And good Friday evening from CNBC Global Headquarters. We'll get to all those stories shortly. But first up is a debt default, the only thing that can derail this economy. No matter how many hits it seems to take, the economy, this economy, just keeps standing. The latest jobs report blowing past estimates with employers adding 253,000 jobs in April. The unemployment rate unexpectedly dropped to 3.4 percent. That's the 13th straight month that the jobs report has topped analysts' expectations. Are the analysts expecting the wrong things? That's a big question. The news now fueling a big rally for stocks to close out what had been an ugly week. The Nasdaq leading the major indices for a gain of more than 2%, with the Dow and the S&P 500 not far behind that. But amid all of that good news, the potentially catastrophic threat of a U.S. default hangs over all of it. The stock market still shrugging off the risk for now, but the bond market definitely not doing that. With the default deadline now less than four weeks away, yields on one-month Treasury bills have just hit their highest point in more than two decades, as investors fear a default could hurt those maturities. So with the clock ticking, President Biden is dialing up the pressure on Congress. Unfortunately, our, I won't say Republican, because I think they're not they're pretty well divided, but our MAGA Republicans in Congress are threatening to undo all this progress by letting us, quote, default on the debt unless we agree to their demands. So the president sits down for a critical meeting coming up on Tuesday with those congressional leaders. How likely is a default at this point, really? And are investors just whistling past the graveyard at this point? That's what we're going to talk to our panel about. So for some insight, let's bring in former Council of Economic Advisors, acting chair Tyler Goodspeed, 
former Democratic Congresswoman from Maryland, Donna Edwards, and founder and managing partner of Veritas Financial and CNBC contributor Greg Branch. Thank you all for joining Last Call tonight. Tyler, let me begin with you. Uh, there's this question about the economy at this point, right? I mean, we've talked about all of the potential negative headlines that have been out there. The economy just keeps trucking along. So the question tonight is, is this debt default the thing that could turn us into recession this year? Uh, it depends on how how long it go, were to go on for, but I think it very well could because, look, we're already seeing some of the effects of this. So, first of all, we, we had a bunch of investors flowing into short-term treasuries to try and enjoy uh, higher yields that expired before, with maturities that expired before the, 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 the expected X date. And then now they're, they're fleeing those short-term treasuries now that the X date seems shorter than, nearer than we initially thought. Uh, so there's just a lot more volatility. I think co confidence is likely to take a hit as a result of the uncertainty surrounding X date and whether we're going to hit a default. And if we do actually hit a default, I mean, well, first of all, even before then, we're already starting to see higher borrowing costs as a result of fears of, of, of crossing X date and defaulting because the cost of secured overnight financing has actually gone up. So this is, this is overnight financing that's secured by U.S. Treasuries. That cost of borrowing has already gone up out of the fear that, uh, that some of those debt obligations won't be honored. So, so the I think we're already so the starting to maybe, see some effects. Maybe. C Congresswoman. And then uh, if we actually cross it, then it's going to be big. Yeah. Congresswoman, you're a Democrat, so I want to ask you this question. Republicans on Capitol Hill have been saying, hey, look, President Biden is saying he's not even going to negotiate with us over this. We want some spending cuts. We want a deal. Uh, the, the president should come to the table. The president's been saying, you know, this is a manufactured crisis by the Republicans. I'm not coming to the table. I'm not negotiating. Do you think the president should negotiate? Do you think that the president should offer some concessions in terms of spending cuts? Look, there's nothing to negotiate. We have bills, that's our debt, and our obligation is to pay the debt. And the fact is uh, that for some of these same Republicans voted three times in the Trump administration to raise a debt ceiling, and it was not linked to spending cuts. Um, I think the reality is that you've got two separate things and they have to be decoupled. Spending is one thing, the appropriate place for that is the appropriations process and the budget. But paying the bills that we've already racked up is an obligation that's a constitutional responsibility uh, for the Congress. And so I don't think there's anything to negotiate about. We cannot get to default. That would be a disaster for the U.S. economy and certainly for the global economy. So that's a no. No negotiation from the president. Hard line. Stick to it. There's nothing to negotiate. Pay the bills. Greg, let me ask you about this uh, from a financial markets perspective, right? I mean, we're all watching this. We're watching the Dow having a pretty good day today, right? Up 500. That's great. Uh, optimism around maybe the banking sector uh, starting to get a little distance from some of the crisis and worries. But this is looming out there. The big uncertainty about this, though, is the X date, right? We just don't know. And estimates are all over the place. The actual day that the United States would default and run out of revenue to finance its business. Uh, if the market is surprised, if that X date sneaks up on us and comes earlier than we think, what is the market reaction to that going to be? Oh, it's going to be significant. It's going to be extreme. At the very least, we've heard June 1st floated about. That even that's four short weeks from now. And yeah. so at this point, we should see in the market at least some probability that this is going to happen. And yet we don't. The market is shrugging us off. My colleagues are shrugging us off. 
All of our colleagues on CNBC have basically shrugged this off as business as usual. They're always going to get a deal because they always have. And that doesn't recognize the political differences that exist today, the, the environmental factors that have changed from the past. Not only are we in a more acrimonious environment than we've seen, at least in my lifetime, uh, but also we're in an environment where there really isn't any fear of consequence because the truth can be whatever you want it to be. You can just retreat to your favorite media outlets and spin it as the other side's fault, even though it might be yours. And so without the fear of consequence, we have politicians who aren't afraid to do something that could result in something that's catastrophic because they don't fear that they'll have to take the blame for it. And so that makes this different. That makes this our best case scenario to what we saw in 2011 when we came up until the X date. And in that scenario, we saw the market drop almost 20% in the three weeks before the X date. Well, we're almost there right yeah, now. We are almost there. And we, we don't see the market. Tyler, let me ask you this. The classic pro process in Washington is we go up to the date of a, of a deadline. We go up to the date of a crisis. And we might need to go a little over the crisis. We might need to have a little real-world pain. And that's when members of Congress come and cut the deal, like the day after X day is when things start to go haywire. They start to see the financial markets. Are we in a standoff now between financial markets, which are sort of blasé about them cutting a deal, and Washington politicians who are sort of thinking, well, we don't have to cut a deal if the markets are blasé? So there's an old rule of thumb that Congress never acts until they absolutely have to, and that's sometimes right. not even then. And I think that's probably going to be a dynamic at play here that financial markets, financial conditions are going to have to get a lot choppier before uh, both sides feel a, a lot of pressure to cut a deal. And that, that, I think, is a lesson of 2011 and 2013. Congresswoman, I talked to one of the most, uh, I would say, influential lobbyists in Washington yesterday, and he told me he thinks there is a deal. I'm a little bit of a pessimist on this one for the same reasons that Greg just laid out. This is a different political world than we've had in the past. Uh, but this lobbyist, who is super well-connected, told me he thinks there is a deal here where Speaker McCarthy could bring a bill to the floor that President Biden could sign. He could get a lot of Democratic votes for it and maybe sprinkle some Freedom Caucus, very conservative Republican votes on it, knowing he won't get them all, but just a couple would give him enough face-saving to keep his speakership and pass a, a bill with a lot of Democratic votes. Do you think Democrats would bail the speaker out that way? Or do you think they'd be inclined to not take a deal and inflict pain? Which is more important to Democrats, political pain for McCarthy or avoiding a default here? Well, I think one of the things that's happened already is that the House has already passed its bill and sent, sent it to the Senate. It's a, a bill that's not going to go anywhere. And so I think the ball is really in the hands of the Senate and the Senate leaders. They're all going to meet um, next week, and that's a good thing. Um, there could be a circumstance, I don't know what, where, you know, you do pass a clean debt ceiling bill and then, uh, you know, there might be some giveaways on spending. I just don't know what those would be because the kinds of things that the Republicans are and the Freedom Caucus want are Democratic and President Biden's priorities. He's not going to cut That's back the on the priorities that he just passed over the last two years. That's absolutely the problem. That's why we're teetering on the edge here. Greg, last word to you, and you can't answer this question with a maybe. Are we going to default or not? I think we will, unfortunately. Really? And I think there's no could in terms of, will that put us into a recession? It will put us into a recession. We'll lose almost a million jobs immediately. We'll catapult into about 5% unemployment. The Fed won't have to raise rates anymore because... The downgrade of our debt will naturally put upward pressure 
on on uh, on interest rates yep. and uh, the the credit market will freeze. Yep. And that we got to go, Greg. We're out of time for this conversation. I don't think markets fully understand what you just said, and I think they're maybe whistling so. past the graveyard a little bit. Thank you all, uh, Tyler, Congresswoman, Greg, for, for your insights here, for your time and expertise. Really appreciate it this evening. Now, the debt ceiling, that discussion is only going to loom larger next week. That's why you don't want to miss Sarah Eisen's sit-down with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen Monday on overtime. Tune in at 4 p.m. Eastern for that one, directly hearing from the Treasury Secretary in this moment of potential crisis anyway. Meantime, here's what happened to your money this week. Despite today's gain, the Dow has fallen a percent and a quarter on the week. The S&P falling eight-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq edging slightly into positive territory. The biggest winner of the week was Royal Caribbean, gaining more than 15%. And for the biggest loser, well, that's Paramount Global losing more than a quarter of its value this week. Straight ahead, Berkshire's annual uh, shareholder meeting gets underway. That's tomorrow morning. Everybody works on a Saturday on Berkshire Day. What might Warren Buffett have to say about the chaos hitting regional banks? Well, we're going to head live to Omaha to hear about that. Plus, what do whales and dolphins have to do with tomorrow's coronation of King Charles? A lot more than you'd think. Those bizarre details coming up. Don't go anywhere. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And it's time for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning, tonight, and it'll be Warren Buffett towering over all of it. Berkshire Hathaway will be holding its annual shareholder meeting in Omaha, Nebraska, the capitalist Woodstock, as they call it, and it will be live Right here on CNBC and CNBC.com, beginning at 10 a.m. Eastern, Buffett and Charlie Munger will be taking the stage to answer questions for five hours. CNBC's Becky Quick and Mike Santoli will be heading our coverage. And no doubt a critical point of focus in all of this is going to be the turmoil and fallout from the regional bank crisis that we've seen playing out certainly this week. Berkshire is a major investor in some of the country's key financial institutions, among them Bank of America, Citigroup, U.S. Bank Corp. and American Express. So what might the Oracle, the Oracle say about this banking mess? Joining us now from Omaha is our own Mike Santoli. Mike, what is the vibe there? Well, I mean, first of all, there is a bit of suspense about how uh, Buffett and Munger might actually characterize their views on this brewing mini crisis, we might say, or slow moving panic in regional banks. I think it's a fair bet that uh, Buffett will express a lot of confidence in those companies that you mentioned that, that Berkshire already has large stakes in. These are pretty large, stable, in their view, well-managed businesses with kind of broad exposure on the U.S. economy. He always talks about the good long-term fundamentals of the U.S. economy. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if go back through history, and Buffett did acquire his stakes in some of those financial companies, American Express, 
60 years ago in the wake of a scandal. Bank of America, you know, around the global financial crisis. He's a source of patient, long-sighted capital in a crisis. That being said, these regional banks that are really in the market's crosshairs right now that are most struggling uh, are not broad franchises where they're great businesses and brands of the kind that perhaps Berkshire would want to own for the very long term, which is really the only kind of investments it makes. I wouldn't be surprised if there's also maybe some harsh words about the management of some of these banks making bad bets on interest rates and getting themselves into this mess as well. Yeah, you know, you talk about the banks, but also commercial real estate in terms of pessimism. Uh, you know, look, Berkshire has shown over the years that it knows how to make a profit in a crisis. But we, we heard from Charlie Munger last week, I believe it was, expressing some real skepticism about some of the commercial real estate uh, out there and what might be ahead for those guys. They're on a longer time horizon. You know, that's not a one-week thing. These are 10-year leases. That might be pushed out over years. You think we're going to hear anything about that? Yeah. Most likely, I wouldn't be surprised if there are questions about that. That is one of those kind of slow-moving, you know, undertoes around the economy right now. People are concerned. It's very linked up with small and medium-sized banks to some degree. And, and also, it, it's one of those parts of the economy that you at least have to ask the question, have things truly changed in some kind of a permanent way for demand for things like office space in particular? So, you know, we'll see out there if, uh, if they see that there's any value at a certain price for, for some of these assets that are uh, starting to struggle. Mike, what time are you going to be on site tomorrow morning? On site, I will be, uh, I'll be here pretty early. We're going to go live online at uh, 945 Eastern. We'll be here ready for Berkshire Hathaway reports. It's earnings before the meeting, so we've got to break that down uh, as well. So uh, be here bright and early uh, in the central time zone, of course. All right, big day, Mike Santoli. Thanks so much. Sticking with the banks, some lawmakers made some very well-timed trades that are coming to light this week, selling bank stocks ahead of some major pain. So let's talk some capital gains where we track who's buying and selling in D.C. Few reporters know this topic better than Kate Kelly, who's the Washington money influence and policy correspondent for The New York Times. She's also a CNBC contributor and a friend of mine. Kate, good to see you again. Uh, You're looking at two congressmen here, and both have been trading bank stocks. First up, Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman of New York. Tell us what he's been up to. So Dan Goldman of New York, Eamon, as you know well, he's a a representative for us here in New York, relatively new to the job. This is his first year in office after many years being a prosecutor. He also is an heir to the Levi Strauss fortune and has quite a large amount of personal assets. They're managed by a a third-party broker, from what we're told, and he has no involvement. But his broker, at least, is very active in the markets. And uh, they were very involved uh, on the downswing in selling some names. I noticed when I was looking at the regional banks and how they were suffering yesterday that he had sold off some of the very names investors were focused on this week. PacWest and Western Alliance both caught my eye. Um, And that was done um, earlier in March. So some losses were averted there. The other thing he did on the flip side that's kind of interesting is his broker got into some uh, additional international banks. Now, to be fair, Hmm. Goldman had owned some of those going into the March crisis, but during the crisis, he put money into Lloyd's, Sumitomo, Commerce Bank, and some others. Now, the other one you're looking at is Democratic Congressman Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey. What did you see there? He recently traded shares of Silicon Valley Bank before it collapsed. He's on the House Financial Services Committee, of course. What can you tell us about that one? 
Yeah, the notable thing about Gottheimer, and again, as you know, Eamon, um, he he lives in New Jersey, not far from the studio you're probably sitting in. Yep. And uh, he's very involved with uh, financial executives. He himself used to work at Microsoft. He's on the Financial Services Committee, as you mentioned. Uh, he's a co-chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus, which meets every so often with uh, financial CEOs. So he's also arguably sort of in the information flow in New York and financial services. Um, so he sold, as you mentioned, SVB the day before it failed. Hmm. And according to analysis by Capital Trades, which is the project of 2IQ, the data firm I rely on most for this sort of information, he was able to avert 99% of his potential losses by doing that trade. The day uh, before it failed. That. Right, the day before it failed. Now, uh, of course, Gottheimer, again, just like Goldman says, or at least his spokesman says, uh, this is managed by a third party. He's in the process of applying for a qualified blind trust. To be fair to the members, that's a very laborious process. And yep. within Congress, the staffing on doing that is pretty limited, so it's not easy. So he says he keeps that at arm's length, but that was a superbly well-timed trade. The <laughs> other thing, again, yeah, I was just going to say, Eamon, speaking of regional banks, uh, Veritex and Ameris, which are a Texas-based and Atlanta-based uh, regional bank, respectively, are names that Gottheimer sold on the 14th of March. Again, they had taken some losses already, but the timing wasn't awful because he did avert some further losses there. Okay, let me ask you this, though. The, the, I've covered these stories as a reporter for years, and the trick with these stories is that you've got to show, if, if you want to say something nefarious happened here, you've got to show that... A, the congressman, him or her or herself, in the case of congresswomen, did the trade themselves and wasn't handled by a blind trust or a, ma a manager who, and the person had nothing to do with it. And also that they were in possession of some particularly private secret piece of information at the time they did those trades. You can line up the timing and say, boy, that looks like smoke. But to find fire, you've got to prove that they had the information and they made the trade themselves. It wasn't handled by somebody outside, right? Well, for a million reasons, it's really hard to make these cases, including yeah. the reasons you just mentioned. Now, I suppose you could make a case if you had the hard evidence that the member called this broker and said, hey, yeah. I got a hot tip on such and such because I just came out of committee. Um, but you rarely, rarely see these cases. One of the few in recent years was in 2019. It was brought by the Southern District of New York against Chris Collins, at the time a New York representative. Part of the reason they were able to make that case, and he pled guilty to it and served some time in jail before being pardoned by President Trump, is that the stock involved was an Australian biotech that he sat on the board of, which in itself is a yep. little odd. He's a serving member of Congress and he's on the board of this Australian pharma company. But be that as it, it may, happens. he contributed some material inside information on that that he passed on to family members. Right. So that was a clean case. Typically, everything that a Congress member does in the course of business is protected under the Constitution by the speech yeah. and debate clause, which is it's a whole very other tough. matter. It's very tough. And we yeah, don't have, as reporters, we don't have subpoena power, so we can't you know, go in and get all the emails, get all the comms. We can never know everything about these situations. Now, I should say, Kate, that we reached out to both congressmen for comment. Here's what they said. Congressman Goldman's office says, Congressman Goldman is not involved in trading stocks in his portfolio, which is managed entirely by a third party. The congressman believes that no member of Congress should have even the appearance of a conflict of interest, which is why he has already begun the lengthy process of entering into a qualified blind trust that must be approved by the Ethics Committee. And Congressman Gottheimer says, prior to taking office, I turned over management of my retirement savings and investments to a third party who has full investment discretion. Throughout my time in Congress, decisions related to my managed investments have been made at the direction of that third party. So make of that what you will. Kate Kelly, 
Thank you so much for being here. And still ahead, investing legend Carl Icahn strikes back at short sellers after a week of brutal attacks on his company. Plus, striking Hollywood writers try to stop being replaced by artificial intelligence. And you know, I don't want to be replaced either, but wait till you see why the writer's fears might just be justified. Stay with us. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's day four of the Hollywood writers' strike. Screenwriters are bracing for a long fight as they continue to picket for better pay and job security. Among their top concerns, artificial intelligence. Writers fear the rapidly changing technology could soon replace them and maybe they have a reason to fear it. So just to test this idea about writers and replacing people, we let Google's AI chat service, Bard, write the next part of the script that I'm reading right now. And here's what the machine came up with. Take a look at this. Hollywood writers are in a state of panic. Artificial intelligence is getting so good at writing scripts that they fear they could be replaced by machines. The Writers Guild of America is demanding that studios regulate the use of AI in writing, but the studios are resisting. Who will win this battle? And what does it mean for the future of Hollywood? So um, that was pretty good, actually. That sound that you hear is producers now crying in our control room. Uh, joining us now is David Steinberg. He's the CEO of Zeta Capital. It's a platform that offers companies marketing tools. David, great to see you again. So are we all doomed? Well, doomed is an overstatement, but if I okay, was a writer in Hollywood... Yeah, if I was a Hollywood writer, I'd be really nervous right now. It's uh, why you know these because these algorithms are able to take large language models, ingest effectively the entire internet every day, and convert it into stories and narratives. And you know, even if it's not going to do away with writers, it's going to have the number of them that we need. Yeah, that's a problem if you're the Writers Guild, right? Um, but it's also a problem throughout the rest of the economy. I'm, I'm look, I'm super sympathetic to writers. Um, it's, but it's also a problem throughout the rest of the economy, right? I mean, I've seen lawyers talking about all the basic lawyering stuff, looking up precedents, writing short scripts, doing contracts, basic law. All of that could be automated. What about accountants? What about any number of professional services uh, occupations in this country? How many jobs do you think this thing could kill? Well, listen, you know, starting with the Gutenberg printing press, going to the computer, the Internet, every technology that's come out that has been transformative, we've all said it's going to eliminate employment. Now, yeah. AI might be the one that really does that. Uh, you know, this week at Zeta, we announced virtual data scientists and virtual data analysts inside of our platform that should allow our clients to no longer need to employ as many of those. If I were That's a incredible lawyer, unless you're a data scientist. Correct. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Or but, a lawyer. Well, the hope, hope is that, exactly. For lawyers, accountants, data scientists, it's, it's anybody who isn't focused on creativity and bringing in business. Yeah. Better think about 
how to start using AI as a tool where they're going to be done away with. But I've seen people talking about AI being used to generate sales leads, to be used to contact potential sales contacts. Goldman Sachs had a report out this week. Uh, they're saying of the occupations which are exposed, most, most have a significant but partial share of the workforce that can be replaced. Around the world, though, in total, Goldman says as many as 300 million jobs could be affected by this. So to your point, which is uh, historically technological change creates more jobs than it destroys. How can this technology, which is maturing before our eyes in a matter of weeks now, how can it replace more than 300 million jobs? How can it generate that? And oh. what are those jobs going to be? You know, there are going to be some winners here, right? Yeah, I definitely do not think it will replace those 300 million jobs. I think those jobs are going to have to change. The other right. thing is... But even if it's just net-net, you know, net, right? You kill 300 million, but you create 400 million. That's a win for society, right? I mean, maybe not for the 300 100%. million. Uh, but 100%. what we kind of jobs are those going to be and who are the winners going to be? Sorry. We also have an aging population globally. Yeah. We don't yeah. really have enough people to fill the jobs we have today. So, I, you know, I think we've got to figure out technological ways to get around this. Uh, and, and listen, I think you're going to have a lot of jobs open up uh, around elder care, yeah. uh, other things around creativity. Uh, you know, and yes, you can generate leads, Eamon, but I think it's going to be hard to close a deal. I think you're going to need people who can still, as I like to joke, do wine and steak I've seen really well. <laughs> I've, that's good. I, 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 that's a job I could do. Um, but I've seen some people say, you know, futurists are talking about this could be the end of work altogether for huge categories of people. You agree uh, with that? You know, I have young kids and, and we've got the movie WALL-E that we watch, right, yeah. where, where computers take care of everything. I, I don't think we're getting there anytime soon. I Listen. I definitely think AI is going to affect hundreds of millions of jobs yeah. and organizations like, you know, Google, Microsoft, you know, Snowflake, Zeta are going to win yeah. in that environment where they're empowering productivity and technology. And you're going to have a lot of companies that are losers yeah. as a David, part of this. Thank you so much for being here on Friday night. Really appreciate your insights. And now back to the human written script here. See if this is any better. All the king's treasures, including dolphins and whales. Seriously, we're going to dig through the utterly bizarre set of assets coming to King Charles ahead of tomorrow's coronation. Plus, CNN rolling out the welcome mat for former President Donald Trump. Can an about face to the center pay off financially? Stay with us. Welcome back to Last Call. Time for a quick watch list. First up, Carl Icahn striking back. Shares in his investment company, Icahn Enterprises, soaring. Their best day since October of 2008, closing up nearly 27%. The stock also breaking an eight-session losing streak. Investors are cheering the news that Icahn Enterprises will pay them an unexpected dividend of $2 per unit. The announcement coming after the firm was the target of a new short call by Hindenburg Research earlier this week. Icon says the move is to, quote, reassure our long-term uh, unit holders that the market disruption caused by the self-serving Hindenburg report does not affect IEP's liquidity. The stock had plunged a total of 40% in the wake of that Hindenburg report before today's rally back. So some drama there. 
and from an icon to a legend, a special programming note. Tune in tomorrow for the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholder meeting. It's going to be live on CNBC. And if you're at your kid's baseball game, you can watch it on the go at CNBC.com or on the CNBC app. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger will take the stage to answer questions for five hours at the event that's known as the Woodstock for Capitalists. Our Becky Quick and Mike Santoli are live in Omaha all of that beginning at 10 a.m. Eastern, special Saturday coverage here. Don't miss that. Also in focus, major media companies having a tough week on Wall Street. Stocks seeing declines across the board, fueled by a rough earnings report from Paramount Global. But one of those companies is looking to potentially shake things up. Warner Brothers Discovery, its CEO, David Zaslov, speaking this morning on Squawk Box about CNN's decision to host a town hall featuring former President Donald Trump. And he teased the idea that the network could be shifting to a more neutral stance. There are a number of advocacy networks out there. Our focus is to be a network about the, like us. The, to facts, the best right. version of the facts, as Carl Bernstein would say, great journalism, and not just politics either. But when we do politics, we need to represent so both the question sides. Is, we got a great political season coming. Um, this is a new CNN. So is that strategy going to work? And is there even a market anymore for middle-of-the-road, unbiased news? Personally, I hope there is. Joining me now, Yale University lecturer Joanne Lippman and Los Angeles Times uh, TV uh, media business reporter Stephen Battaglio. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Joanne, let me start with you on this one because CNN, you know, had drifted and sort of became a, a Trump-critical network, and that was sort of their identity during the Trump years. Now we see this effort by Zaslav uh, and others to sort of pull it back to the center. It reads like they're shifting conservative, but what we're, they're doing is sort of going back to a news focus. Do you think there's a business model there? I mean, cable news for years has been about you aggregate these niche audiences that are passionately interested in something and fire them up, and they'll watch you. You can make money doing that. Is there a passionate audience in the middle? Yeah, I think the issue, I would actually reframe this conversation because this whole down the middle suggests and down the center, right? All it suggests is that the only audience for news is a political audience and that all news is either left news or right news. And I think this is actually where CNN and others have fallen down is we've fallen into this trap of just diving into one side or the other. Yeah. Whereas what I think where where the Instead of the middle, I think what we as the news industry need to do is actually rethink how do we define what is news. Zasov actually hit on this a little bit because it is more than politics. It is more than, you know, who's woke and who's not woke and what politician are we going to put on? I mean, it's the new discoveries in science, it's breakthroughs in cancer. You know, it's what's going on in autos and fashion and sports. It's so much more that we have been ignoring because we have so doubled down on politics on one side or the other. So, Stephen, where is that audience that CNN is going to go find? Is it, you know, an automotive audience? Is it a, an entertainment audience? You know, who are the people who are going to watch this new iteration of CNN? I think CNN has been put in a really tough situation because David Zaslav has gone public saying that it, it's an advocacy network or that it had moved too far left. You know, before Warner Brothers Discovery or uh, mer merged or before they before Discovery bought owned CNN, half the public was just fine with it. And if you believe now, uh, you know, that that it's a, a left wing network that needs adjustment, well, then you're putting the network under very unnecessary scrutiny for every move it makes. Yeah. People who thought the network was defending democracy democracy by aggressively going after Trump 
are now becoming more unhappy with it. And no matter how many Republicans, so if you CNN lose, if you lose here, that audience, it will never be right leaning enough. Uh, to, to pull away Fox viewers. If you lose that audience that felt they were defending democracy and sticking it to Trump, and you pivot to a different model, you gotta go out and get another audience, right? So I guess the question is, what is that other audience? Um, and so I, I go back to this thing, my dad was a reporter and he talks uh, a lot about the idea that maybe this idea of journalistic objectivity that we all grew up with in this business and that I still believe in passionately myself, Maybe that was sort of an, an unusual circumstance driven by market forces because all the city newspapers consolidated from the 19 partisan yellow journalism newspapers into one monopoly newspaper that had to, in each city, be more appealing to a broader group. You had broadcast networks that had to be appealing to the entire country, looking for 100 million viewers or whatever the big number was that they were getting back in the heyday. Uh, and that forced an economic necessity of objectivity because they were going after a broad market. Now maybe that idea is out the window and you're fracturing and finding these other audiences. Joanne, where's the other audience gonna come from? I do think there's an audience for people who are not just so focused on politics. If you, the average person does not spend all of their daytime and all of their dinner time talking about politics. There but are Zaslav, so many other issues. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but there's, Zaslav did in that clip we just played, he said the big thing coming up is the, the political season, right? They're looking to that to get them a bounce. It's and their bread and butter. They depend on it every time, every four years, every two years, really. Yeah. But there really needs to be another model where we are looking beyond politics. There used to be, yeah. and, and Eamon, what you were talking about before, we actually did cover other issues. The other thing that we don't do very well at all, and I think there is a market for this, is to do much a better job of explaining what's going on. I mean, we have we are so focused on the political issues, the left and the right and the argument around the issues that we forget to actually explain what the issues are. Yeah. Exhibit A would be the debt ceiling. I think if you ask the average person on the street about what is the debt ceiling argument about, if they know anything about it, they're going to tell you it's about future spending and about being fiscally responsible. When, of course, it is nothing of the sort. The debt yeah. ceiling most people don't realize, but obviously, you know, you've talked about it earlier in the show, is all about paying the debts that we have already agreed, that we've spent, that Congress approved. But most people don't know that. And that's a great, you know what? It's not their fault. That is, <laughs> that is a great place to, to leave it, I think. I, I do think we all need to do better explaining, being clear, sticking to the facts, uh, and doing old-fashioned journalism. That's, that's what I got in this business to do. So thank you, Stephen Battaglio, LA Times reporter, and Joanne Littman, author of Next, the power of reinvention in life and work. Thank you both. Coming up, stunning new revelations about Jeff Epstein's ties to some of the world's most powerful and famous people. The author of a must-read report is going to join us here next. Welcome back, everybody. Major developments this week in the case against Jeffrey Epstein. The Wall Street Journal releasing bombshell reports throughout the week laying out Epstein's alleged ties to a number of major names, including Bill Gates, Leon Black, and Woody Allen, among others. The latest reporting detailing Epstein's schedule from just one day on September 8th of 2014, showing the disgraced financier met with Gates, Black, Thomas Pritzker, and Mortimer Zuckerman, all in the space of just a few hours. So joining me now is one of the reporters behind this week's revelations, Wall Street Journal reporter Khadija Safdar. Excuse me. Uh, thank you for the reporting. Thank you for the story. Tell me what we learned in this series this week. 
I think what we learned is the names of new prominent people who were meeting Epstein after his 2008 conviction, um, which is when later on he became a um, registered sex offender. And I think um, what was surprising is also this the frequency and types of interactions that some of these people were having. I mean, in some cases, they were dozens of meetings. And then among his contacts that were known, um, we learned about the relationships and that they, in some cases, ran deeper. And we get a sense of the types of favors that were being traded. I'm really tempted to ask you how you got these documents. It's an incredible trove of data. I'm not going to ask you that. I'm tempted to ask you that because I'm covering the same story and we don't have them. It's a remarkable piece of reporting that you guys have laid out. And what strikes me is not only the, the repetition of these meetings, uh, but the, the frequency of contacts. I mean, he's doing this all day long, every day. He's building this empire minute by minute, hour by hour. And it, to me, it shows that this was a guy who very deliberately sought out to you know, insinuate himself in the very highest levels of power and money in this country. Is that how you read it? Yeah, I mean, I think it raises some serious questions about how someone like Jeffrey Epstein with like few qualifications and who is at this point a registered sex offender was able to penetrate these layers of society and associate with some of the most prominent people in their fields and in the country. Now, to be clear, you're not suggesting, and, and no one is suggesting, that all of these people, or even really maybe any of these people, were involved in the sexual wrongdoing that Jeffrey Epstein was accused of. Uh, what you're saying is these people were having meetings with him, and they were justifying those meetings as getting you know, philanthropic advice, getting uh, access to financing for charities, and that kind of thing. But you do wonder, you know, if you're a guy like Bill Gates, I mean, why do you need Jeffrey Epstein for advice on philanthropy? He has access to every philanthropic expert in the world, right? Yeah, I mean, that is kind of, that is, those are the explanations we're getting from people. They're usually reasons tied to um, his connections or his wealth. Like Burns, who's the CIA director, he said that he met him back in the day for career advice. The Goldman's top lawyer said she wanted to meet him for contacts. A university president said that they were looking for fundraising help. But you're right. I mean, it does make you wonder whether people are being truthful. But at this point, we don't have anything in the documents, as you said, to suggest anything beyond the reasons that people are giving. So I think at this point, we do have to rely on what they're saying to, yeah. to understand why they were there. More to come on this, maybe. Fabulous reporting. Kudos to The Wall Street Journal. Thank you for being here tonight. Really appreciate it. And coming up, the lavish life of King Charles on full display tomorrow. But it's the strange and valuable assets that he owns that are raising our eyebrows tonight, including uh, dolphins. Dolphins. Stay with us. Welcome back to Last Call. The coronation of King Charles is just a few hours away as Buckingham uh, Buckingham Palace readies the jewels, the gold stagecoach, the gem-encrusted scepter. Let's dig into the financials of this thing. We are CNBC, of course. And according to the estimates from the BBC, the pomp and circumstance, including the King's procession and a star-studded concert in Windsor Gardens, could cost British taxpayers up to $125 million, not to mention the bank holiday after the ceremony, which could cost an additional loss of $1.7 billion in productivity to the UK economy. And yet, 
the show must go on. So joining me now is Rob Shooter, the host of the Naughty But Nice podcast on the iHeartRadio stations. He's also worked for members of the British royal family, including Princess Michael of Kent uh, as her publicist in the U.S. Rob, so explain this to me. I'm an American. I'm a little clueless about royalty and such. Do, do Brits look at this and say, like, this is a great deal for us? <laughs> they do. They, they do. really, really do. You have to remember that we grew up with this family. They've been around for almost a, a thousand years. I remember when I was a young boy, there was a picture of Queen Elizabeth in my home. There was a picture of her in my school. Every time you went out and spent any money, there was a picture of the Queen. So it's sort yeah. of hard to overestimate how entrenched into British society this family is. Things are changing a little bit now, but for at least all of Queen Elizabeth's reign, the Brits were certainly there with her. I'm not much of a king guy myself, um, but we did a little research into what King Charles actually owns and what he's going to, I think we can pull this up on the screen here, and what he's going to possess as part of the royal possessions. He, he owns 32,000 swans. He's got an unidentified number of dolphins. I think he owns all the whales uh, in England, sturgeons. $20.7 billion worth of real estate, $500 million in personal assets, and $46 billion that's held in trust as the sovereign. I mean, you know, it's a little bit hard to sort out, you know, as a sovereign, what, what does he own? What does the state own? You know, could he take all those Leonardos with him if he were to resign? <laughs> you know, we don't know the answer to that. Uh, but explain how that's justified, how this family deserves all of that. The Brits just don't think about it like that. Few, a few are starting to, and a few people now are asking, are they really worth all this money, they see them as, as the fabric of, of Britain. It's like asking, what is Britain worth? And we want them to live in a beautiful palace. We want them to have crowns on their heads and, and drive around in really expensive gold carriages. So I think the Brits are really tied up with this and they don't separate themselves from it. Obviously, if you look at it from a perspective of just money, it's very, very yeah. hard to justify, but um, it's more than that. It's a lot more than that. Real quick, we're going to have to go here, but what are you going to be watching for tomorrow? <laughs> I'm going to be watching, uh, it's terrible, but Harry and Meghan drama. I want to see uh, if Harry is welcomed in there. I want to the see, they say Charles returns. is trying to, yeah, that's right. They're trying to say, will Charles talk to Harry? My, my, my sources in Britain tell me it's Harry in a hurry. He's on a plane right now. He's going to land. Is, he's going to go to the coronation and then leave. That's going to be at the hurry. royal body language. Thank you so much, Rob. That's <laughs> fascinating. You can catch NBC's coverage of the coronation beginning tomorrow, 5 a.m., Eastern. Meantime, do you know what happened 21 years ago tonight? Spider-Man swung into the record books. It became the first movie in history to top $100 million in its opening weekend. Let's take you back in time to May 5th, 2002. Spider-Man raked in more than $114 million after opening in more than 3,600 theaters nationwide two days earlier. Since then, 71 movies have crossed $100 million in their opening weekend. That's according to Box Office Mojo. Can you guess which movie had the biggest open? Hint, it was another superhero blockbuster. Avengers Endgame in 2019, it made more than $357 million in its opening weekend. That'll do us. That'll do it for us on Last Call. Brian Sullivan back here on Monday weekend. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. 
Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.